0: Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome to season four of Talking with Traders with me, Garth McKenzie. It's been a lengthy hiatus since we completed season three of this series, so it's good to be back. Thank you to IG Markets for once again coming on board to fund and sponsor this podcast their involvement is hugely valuable and we're proud to have such an award-winning CFD provider alongside us. In this season, I'll welcome back some of our most popular guests from previous seasons to get their updated views on the markets. And I'll also bring in some new guests too. I'll be asking them pertinent questions about how they trade the market and where they're seeing opportunities in the global trading and investing arena. The idea is that you, the listener, gain some valuable insight education from these market professionals that may be of use in your own trading and investing. So with that in mind, let's get straight into this week's episode of Talking with Traders. Welcome back to another episode of Talking with Traders. And for this week's episode, I'm delighted to welcome back Dr. Adrian Saville. Uh, He is a former guest on Talking with Traders. And we last spoke, Adrian, in August of 2020. So that is 18 months ago. And for anyone that's been paying attention, they'll know that the last 18 months has really been a very interesting time in the markets. We've seen some major ups and downs and big events during that time. We've lived through COVID and kind of coming out the back of it now. Uh, Welcome back. And I'm really looking forward to another 40 odd minutes of chatting to you, Adrian.
1: Thanks, Scott. You know, it's great to be with you when uh, when you said to me ahead of this that it was 18 months since we had done the last uh, uh, recording, uh, it's, uh, it's somewhat surprising, but it's also a, a sobering reminder of how spectacularly things can change in, in a short space of time. 18 months ago, we were in a different world.
0: Well, we certainly were. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But in a different world in more ways than one. I think, first of all, for, for you personally, things have changed quite a lot. Um, you've, you've moved on, you've sold your business, you've sold out of Canon Asset Managers, which is what you were very much synonymous with for a number of years. So you know, tell us a little bit about that and where you are now and what you're up to currently.
1: Sure. Um, uh, Canon was uh, was the baby that I built over the better part of 20 years, uh, starting its life as a specialist um, equity manager and growing up and evolving to uh, a barbell investment approach with specialist equity, highly concentrated uh, pure equity portfolios um, on the one end of the risk spectrum, and then all the way along the spectrum, uh, multi-asset portfolios where uh, in the last part of my time with uh, with Canon, we built uh, a very successful uh, money market fund. And, and I think that that speaks to the agility and evolution uh, of the business over uh, 20 years. If we rewind to the uh, 1990s when the business started, it was physical script delivery, um, uh, signed mandates, sent by fax. Uh, and checks deposited um, uh, at the bank. <laughs> and where we finished, uh, it was onboarding uh, our investors uh, on a digital platform. So it was it was just an exceptional uh, journey and a real privilege to work with uh, a range of different people. Uh, I had a fantastic team around me over uh, over that time, but the journey had come to an end, and uh, we exited the business. Uh, to a listed company, and uh, I spent a couple of years handing over uh, after that exit. And then at the beginning of uh, 2021, 20, uh, took up an opportunity to join uh, Genera Capital, which is a multifamily investment office, looking after uh, f- uh, family assets and uh, the bulk of those assets being taken into, into global solutions where we have as the core solution a fund called uh, Genera Optimal, which is multi-asset beta strategy um, uh, complemented with uh, tactical asset allocation, and then putting around that, given that it is a family office, exposure to private equity, private equity secondaries, venture capital, uh, and so on. And inside of the, the family office, I've been given responsibility for a a domestic multi asset portfolio, and then I continue or I extend uh, my uh, management of the focused equity portfolio
0: okay super and you've always been an academic as well uh obviously you're a professor yeah. um, and you're still are you still lecturing at gibbs
1: yeah uh, and you know I guess I can proudly share with you that i I was uh, promoted to full professor uh, at the Uh, uh, at the beginning of this year. I'm not entirely sure what the difference is between uh, associate professor and full professor because I don't think anything happened to my IQ. But a little bit
0: happened to my workload. <laughs> <laughs> well, It's super. I mean, it's, so, been, it's, it's, it's been fun to also follow your career over the years because you know, we alluded to this on the previous podcast that I did with you back in, in, in 2020 and said that, you know, I, my very early days of my career was at... Uh, deal smith securities and and sa stockbrokers was upstairs from us you shared a little three by three office uh, where you yeah yeah, where you you started canon asset managers back then and that was in about well i think i started there in 2001 so those were early days and it's been very interesting to follow your progress over the years so um it's it's great uh, obviously to see what you're doing now and i guess working with multi-family offices uh, at, at generic capital must be very interesting as well given that those are proper high net worth clients, I guess that you that you're dealing with in that space, and you probably get to up to see some fairly interesting opportunities, I would guess.
1: There's a, there's a range of things that are uh, different in the in the family office setting, and I think the the first is the is the permanence of capital um, that there is a far more sort of enduring. Uh, relationship and partnership that you're building with families you know, not to suggest that you know high net worth is transactional but there is there, there is without question uh, a, a higher degree of intimacy uh, integration and partnering uh, with uh, with our uh, family investors. The second is the uh, the mandates the, the, the investment problems that we're solving. Uh, also tend to be far more multifaceted, thinking about different uh, uh, aspects of the family relationship or family dynamic. We're thinking about intergenerational wealth, which means investment horizons tend to go longer rather than shorter. And the investment set uh, is wider. And for me, that's been a really... I, I've been delighted by moving into uh, private capital markets, and that started around about uh, 2016 when I became involved in a, a couple of uh, direct equity um, investments um, in the healthcare sector. Then, 2017, uh, I was appointed as the chair of the investment committee of a venture capital entity called Meta Capital and we've had uh some really uh, i think neat success uh, across industries in uh in the venture capital arena but moving into uh, genera capital it's been a far more explicit uh uh engagement with uh private capital markets including uh you know mezzanine capital for uh, for property finance biotech venture capital um uh, looking at secondary opportunities in private equity. So it's a much, much wider uh, suite of uh, uh, investment universe.
0: Mm. Okay, super. One of the things that I particularly wanted to get you on the podcast uh, to discuss is the is, is the concept of viewing trading as an asset class. Um, mm. And I, I've been thinking of a number of guests who I could potentially talk about regarding this. And, you know, there's not that many people that I think would fit the mold. And I've thought about you because I know when we spoke previously, you one of the things that you said was that fundamentally you're an asset allocator and clearly that's exactly what you're doing now dealing with family offices and as you said you know you talk about different asset classes and venture capital and private investor investments but also funds etc um and that's why i wanted to chat to you around this particularly because obviously this this podcast is called talking with traders so a lot of the listeners come here to hear about traders and trading specifically but obviously we branch out away from trading and talk about other things that are that are you know, relevant to investment in general, not just necessarily trading. But I've been thinking about this quite a bit myself recently in terms of where we are in the market cycle now and thinking about trading as as an asset class. And it, maybe I'll just go back a little bit for, uh, to, to try and tee this up, if I may. We sit in a situation now broadly in, in the financial markets from a global perspective which is is quite interesting we the the backdrop is changing in the sense that what's powered these markets higher and particularly the us market over the last decade and a bit has been very very accommodative monetary policy very low interest rates lots of stimulus etc all of that that punch bowl now looks as if it's being pulled back and mm-hmm. we, we set up for quite a different decade ahead from what I can see. And I follow guys like John Hussman, who who writes the Hussman Report, very well-respected investor in the US. Um, Another one who's very well-known is Jeremy Grantham, GMO. And these guys if you read their work, are talking about, you know, a decade, I'm going to maybe put words in their mouth, but a decade of doom. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's a little bit harsh to call it a decade of doom. But it's a decade looking out where they're saying that your next sort of seven to 10 year forward returns for equity markets are, are likely to be close to zero based on the starting point we're at currently from perspective of valuations, leverage in the system, etc. And and that makes me think, well, you know, buy and hold investing in that case is going to be a tough place to be over the next decade, if you believe what these guys are saying. So I want to I suppose TF up the, the, the conversation around viewing trading as an asset class, but first of all, get your feeling on the, the decade ahead and what it looks like and possibly how it differs from the decade past.
1: I'll, I'll borrow uh, directly from your reference to uh, Jeremy Grantham. You know, GMO, I think, is absolutely, it's just a world-class outfit. Mm. Uh, that might be stating the obvious, but what really stands out is the is the thoughtfulness uh, and the uh, and the distance of their perspective, as as opposed to so much that we get exposed to uh, in capital markets, which is you know noise trading as news. GMO uh, puts out uh, their seven-year asset uh, return uh, uh, forecast, which I suspect is in part what you're referencing. Yeah. And. they're they're not forecasting earnings, they're not trying to figure out where interest rates are going, they're not talking about economic growth, they're simply using uh, valuation. uh, And based on the valuations that we're looking at, what can you anticipate from this asset class? And uh, price is one of the few things that we know with certainty uh, in the world of investing. And when you look at uh, that seven year uh, horizon, I'm very sympathetic with their view that it's, it's difficult to see big returns coming from many asset classes. Uh, it's In fact, it looks far more likely that most asset classes deliver disappointment over the next seven years. You could squeeze you know, some interesting gains out of uh, 10-year US government bonds, trading at uh, 2% yields, you know, that they may go Japanese, um, and then you would have huge gains. But you know, that that, that feels far less likely than more likely. Mm. Uh, and I don't think that that's investing. I think that that's in the realm of speculation, with loaded with risk. Um, you know, so bonds look uh, tricky. Uh, cash offers nothing. And I'm speaking sweepingly and globally. We can we can go and find pockets. Um, there's interesting sub pockets. I think, you know, global credit, uh, certainly secured credit is, is quite an interesting opportunity. There are elements in emerging markets where you've had uh, disinterest for a long time. Uh, and if I would have put uh, a long short uh, in my, 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 my biggest uh, uh, asset class equities, uh, I would be long Europe short the U.S., um, matching European companies to their U.S. counterparts, where for whatever set of reasons the market thinks that uh, the U.S. is the only place to go, and Europe is incapable of building interesting businesses, but we can, you know, match the likes of Nestle with Procter and Gamble, for instance. Um, and uh, and I think that uh, you know that starts to then take us into a conversation about trading your way uh, or certainly tactically moving your way through what looks like a challenging uh, environment. And of course, that's against the backdrop of, uh, of January and February, where there's all types of stuff going on that has translated into a very, very difficult start to the year.
0: Yeah, well, it certainly has. We've seen volatility picking up. I was just looking at the VIX index a moment ago before we started speaking and seeing it you know, that VIX has been making higher lows and higher highs over the last six months or so, which is, mm-hmm. is different to what we've seen in the years past where the VIX has been stubbornly low. Um, and I guess that also then talks to the point that I'm sort of alluding to and leaning towards is this view of uh, uh, this idea of viewing trading as an asset class. And when I say trading as an asset class, I'm talking about, you know, if you think about your average person, you know, what asset classes do they typically own? They own some property, the property they live in. They often do own some equity, which might be buy and hold equity via some vehicle, be it a a pension fund or a unit trust or something along those kind of lines. Um, and then you've got your alternative asset classes. I guess some people might deem cryptocurrency to be an asset class now. Um, but I'm seeing more and more that I think trading as an asset class must surely start to become very interesting looking in the in the years ahead particularly if volatility mm-hmm. is going to be higher than what it's been in the last decade and i guess and i and i suppose i'm speaking with uh i'm talking my book right because that's what i do i'm a trader and the vast majority of my own assets are are allocated towards trading but i'm mm-hmm. i'm thinking mm-hmm. from a perspective of trying to generate returns in the next 10 years or seven years when it, it's widely expected that they're going to be quite poor.
1: Yeah, Trading yeah. must
0: surely give you an opportunity. But it's a it's a very foreign, you know, not everybody can be a trader. And I find that yeah. often the mud, the waters get very, very muddied between what trading is and what investing is. And, and I think that's where people go wrong with it. But there's got to be, a, I guess, a, a bright outlook if you are a trader, if you're a specialist and you can do this in in the next so decade for a rise of an asset class called trading
1: yeah um, and you know there's a whole bunch of things that you make me think in uh, of in 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 that uh, commentary the one is uh, you know if you can get trading right uh, then you know slap a label on yourself called uh, uh, uh jim simmons james simmons yeah, uh, Renaissance Technologies, and your work here is done. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that they have got about as close to having perfected trading as you can get. Uh, with Renaissance Technologies uh, uh, turning over its portfolio, no, they can turn over a portfolio in a day yeah. uh, without too much sweat. One hundred and thirty billion dollars under management, and the most incredibly uh, impressive track record uh, in in the form of RenTech, and uh, Jim Simmons is uh, is a mathematician. So this is uh, systematized. Uh, it's methodical. It's mechanical. It's uh, it's deep process. And I've already suggested. I think that that is about as close to perfecting trading uh, as you can, you know, uh, uh, as I can find if I scan uh, the globe. Mm. You've got. Um, you know, a, a alongside that, so I think that's, you know, that's one of the first things that I would point to as, you know, trading being an asset class, as you suggest, is it needs to have something that sits underneath it that suggests it is repeatable, sustainable, that you've got some type of information advantage. And in the case of red Tech, Jim Simmons, uh, it's this uh, mathematization uh, of, uh, of trading. The, the other person that uh, I would point to as, uh, as a giant when it comes to regarding trading as an asset class is uh, Fontap. And yeah. you know, Fontap gives us a whole bunch of rules around how this might work and where the information advantages uh, could come from, how we manage ourselves, uh, look after risk, protect the downside, uh, uh trading can take us out in in in, in a uh, in a morning my son uh, he 's fifteen um has just started to build fictitious portfolios and i 'm thrilled for him because it's uh it 's around the time that i started to build fictitious portfolios um in you know, a young teenager and he 's intrigued by you know what 's going on in uh, in markets and Equally, you know, as much as he's intrigued, he's fascinated or bewildered that he can lose even more money than he can make uh, in an hour. And, uh, you know, in some instances get entirely carried out uh, by you know, getting a trade wrong. So if we're going to talk about trading as an asset class, uh, what's your information advantage? How can you be confident that you have uh, mitigated the risk and Volatility is just one form of risk. There are many other shapes and forms of risk. But how can you be confident that you've mitigated the risk and that you will harness uh, better uh, than uh, risk-related upside so that your risk-adjusted returns beat uh, beat the market is? And I'm I'm doing air commerce, Garth, you know, whatever the market is that you are uh, uh, setting out to defeat, whether that market is or to beat whether that market is um, uh, uh, an equity market, a cash market, uh, whatever it might be. Yeah.
0: yeah, okay. Yeah, this is interesting. I mean, that's a, it's, a, it's something I think is going to be become more and more yeah. acceptable going forward. And th- th- one of the things you didn't mention, I mean, you talked about managing risk and looking for what yeah. your, inf- your information advantage is, et cetera, and all of these things are very important. One of the biggest aspects of trading which, which I, I certainly am aware of and any trading book worth its salt also refers to is the whole psychological aspect to trading. And that's actually the hardest part because getting your information advantage is, is one thing. Knowing how you manage mm-hmm. your risk is another thing. And all of these things, I would argue, account for a relatively small percentage of, uh, of what it makes or what, what it takes to be successful as a trader. The psychological aspect of it is the hardest part to monitor uh, and and to manage, and I think that's possibly why trading it generally gets a bit of a bad rep and why most people can't do it. You know, the stats don't st- that stats don't su- support trading as an asset class. If you go to people and say, well, and, and all of the CFD providers out there that they advertise their CFD products, they're forced. To make a, disclo- a disclaimer on their website to say, you know, seventy-eight percent or eighty percent of clients lose money. That's typically around about the number. Um, mm-hmm. And why is that? It's because they can't manage their emotions. It's the hardest part of trading to to get a grip on. And I guess that is also why trading gets a little bit of a bad rep in the traditional financial community because the the, the track record's not good, right? Well, retail <laughs> yeah. traders, i mean, I'm, 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 I'm I'm talking about.
1: <laughs> uh, although we're recording on audio, uh, I'm, I'm I'm smiling from ear to ear because uh, trading doesn't get a, a good rap, um, but it, nor should uh, active investment management. You know, your your loss ratio in active investment management is uh, is horrific. Uh, that most active managers uh, uh, eat. Uh, eat money um, uh, through through fees and through bad decisions. And well, I mean, maybe we should single out uh, a, a a spectacular recent example, and that's Cathie Wood. Um, you know, where this promise of be- beating the, the market by a country mile, they've now eaten more in fees uh, than, uh, than investors have experienced in returns. Uh, well, that was at the beginning of January, and since then, uh, have taken investors into deep uh, negative territory. So, you know, maybe trading gets a uh, a hard time. Active management should uh, get an equally hard time. But you know, that's I mean, maybe that's getting too grumpy, and that's taking us a little bit off point. So mm-hmm. you know, the thing that I'm uh, that I would be looking for in taking any trading decision uh, is. What's the information advantage that I have? And then, Garth, we can debate about how long uh, uh, does a trade take? Because, you know, does trading mean I'm in in the morning and out in the afternoon? Is that a trade? Or why can a trade not be uh, much, much longer in duration? Uh, by way of example, um, and, and I would call this a trade for a long time in my global portfolio. Uh, I held a, uh, a stock loan uh, called uh, Altbaba, which had been uh, financed by a capital out of um, Alibaba. And so you long uh, Altbaba and you short uh, Alibaba, the Chinese uh, internet giant. And why would you be long one and short the other one? Because Altbaba held only one asset, and that was Alibaba shares which you knew that they were going to distribute and they were trading at a deep discount to net asset value. So all you had to do was have you know, a long enough horizon and you had a, a fantastic uh, a free carry in, in that trade. Now that trade <laughs> happened to take the better part of two years, but mm. what a great trade.
0: Yeah. You're listening to Talking With Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG a world-leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. Well, that's it. I think mean, trading it can take so many different styles. And yes, you can be an intraday trader where you're in and out during the same session, but you know that works for some people. But it, for myself personally, that's not how I trade. I, I take trades with a position with a view for a couple of days to a couple of weeks, or even sometimes a couple of months. Um, Mm -hmm. The point is, it's not buy and hold. I'm not buying something with Warren Buffett style idea of holding it. You know, your holding time is forever. Um, There is an exit. There is a strategy. Every time you go into a trade, there is a strategy. There's an exit. There's a stop loss. And there's also a time stop loss as to when this thing Mm -hmm. needs to work by. And if it hasn't done that by X X date, you know, close it and move on to the next thing.
1: And, and that's your point about the psychology and the discipline is um, I, I would i think that that is one of the most critical components of uh, successful trading is having uh, a very a very very clear set of uh, parameters that sit around your your decisions and that uh, guide your process mm. And then the psychology of, uh, of the trader, where it, it, it tends to be solitary rather than communal. Yep. Um, uh, and, and that then means that the psychological elements are, are elevated compared to, uh, you know, I, I suppose, fundamental uh, processes. There might be a sweeping suggestion, but I think as much as it's sweeping, it's probably in the direction of fair when we're distinguishing between trading and fundamental investment processes. Mm,
0: mm. Yeah, yeah. Such an interesting conversation, such an interesting idea. I think we're going to – I mean, I'd really like to take this up with you again in the future and talk a bit more about it. Just to deviate a little bit, um, and and I suppose this is – trading to a certain extent, or maybe it's not. But when we spoke the last time, you you mentioned that you quite liked gold and having exposure to gold, um, and I wanted to ta- to tap you I'm on this again. You yeah, no. Well, I listened to our previous podcast before I set up the questions and set this podcast okay. up, um, and 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 one of the things you did allude to is that you 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 were relatively bullish on gold because of its mm. uh, inflation hedge characteristics. Now, and and you clearly you're not alone in that. Um, there's a, a number of people who hold that view that in, that gold is a store of a value against inflation, but we've we've seen inflation over the last year. We, inflation in the US is now at, at a, a multi-decade high, and. Uh, and gold hasn't really done very much during that time. I mean, yeah. you, you would yeah. have seen the the memes going around early this year and said, you know, inflation uh, was 7% in the US. What did you do? And the, the little kid is crying and saying, well, I, I bought gold. Um, <laughs> right, <laughs> that was sure, doing the rounds. Go there, eh? Yeah, that was the doing the rounds on Twitter. But I mean, how do you feel about that now, as a as a as a hedge against inflation? And I guess also in maybe it's not fair to ask the same question, but it's it, it, you know does crypto? And it's not right now because crypto has been smashed in the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. But you know, the, the, some believe that crypto is your new store of value
1: that is yeah, going to be your inflation yeah. hedge? Sure. I mean, there's, there's so much in that. The first thing is, uh, you know, my reference to gold as a hedge is uh, even more than an inflation hedge uh, or perhaps before being an inflation hedge, it is a, it's a portfolio hedge that gold tends to behave very differently. So in my, uh, in my multi-asset fund, I've got a 10% exposure to physical gold um and that's not about whether i think gold is uh, attractively priced or uh, in a compelling value it's that gold behaves so differently which means it dampens your volatility and if you dampen volatility especially downside volatility it means each of your recoveries starts from a higher base and i guess that's a you know, a, a fundamental principle of trading, you know, uh, hmm. beyond, you know, spec- a broad portfolio management, that's a very specific attribute of trading and you, you made reference to it setting floors. So gold uh, actually gives you uh, a floor uh, in your portfolio that would be higher than almost any other portfolio without gold. Uh, and that is a a fundamentally valuable uh, attribute of, of of gold as an asset class is that it behaves so differently and that's such a powerful diversifier. I can't help myself, but in the same breath, add in the element of trading. And uh, because gold is the underpin to gold miners, uh, it affords real opportunity in in, in trading uh, uh, gold-based businesses uh, where... It's not uncommon to see you know companies with beta that is multiples of market, you know, and I've said gold. Let me throw into that uh, that same breath uh, Anglo Platinum. Anglo Platinum has just produced results. If we rewind to March of two thousand and twenty, hindsight is an exact science, but this just gives you a sense of the the volatility and the uh, the trading opportunity. If you go back to uh, March of 2020, of course, that was a plunged market and Blackham was uh, uh, digging ditches. But Anglo Plat traded at 400 Rand a share. Uh, as we speak, it's trading at 2000 Rand a share. So, up five times uh, in the space of uh, just under two years. And over that time, it's given you uh, uh, almost that 400 Rand back in dividends. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is you know, trading perfected. So sure. gold is a portfolio diversifier. You may trade gold, but I think if you're going to trade something, trading gold stocks is going to be even more interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, well, that's it. I mean, gold stocks are notoriously volatile. But having said that, all resource stocks generally are notoriously volatile and they're cyclical. So if you capture the right, if the, the right part of the cycle, you can do incredibly well trading those assets. But it is key so to go- be to get the timing right
1: if 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 you take you know you have asked me you know am i disappointed or you know i i guess you're poking me a little bit about you know i i had this large holding in gold and i've still got it hmm. well you know the 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 multi-asset portfolio has performed uh in line with uh 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 medium equity multi-asset peers uh, so the return is as good uh, as my peers and the volatility is lower yeah and, and, and that's the, you know, to me, that's effective investment results as I've got you to the same destination with lower risk.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, and yeah, yes, I guess if one takes it only over a relatively short space of time, like the last, let's say, two years, one could say, oh, well, gold hasn't done much. But actually, you've got to zoom. I'm glad you've got you to said zoom.
1: that's a short
0: time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you, you've got to look further. out. I mean, while you've been talking, I just thought, let me have a look at the relative performance of gold versus the S&P 500. And a lot of people wouldn't realize this, but it has been up and down. But gold has given you the same performance over basically – Twenty years. In fact, it's outperformed over twenty years relative to the S and P 500. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of people wouldn't think so, but that's actually that's a, there. Yeah. It is on a graph in front of me right now.
1: And and if you'd held a portfolio of half S and P 500, half gold, uh, you would have done better than either asset class uh, individually. So that's the power of uh, of the diversification. And then. Elegantly, you know, along the way, could we trade? And that's about uh, valuation. You you referenced uh, uh, my uh, academic um, uh, involvement. And this conversation makes me think of uh, a couple of pieces of research that uh, I've been involved with over the years. The one is uh, done by Guy Royston. uh, And and Guy looked at uh, trading rules that came from moving averages. Yeah. where uh, a, a tool as simple and naive uh, as a moving average carries an information advantage. That was the insight from, from Guy Royston's work, and he looked uh, across markets, across asset classes, through a, a range of different markets. And another is uh, a more recent piece of work done by uh, Rob Katano, and Rob looked at valuation just on equities but to pick up on the point of uh, a zero interest rate environment, you know how do you value uh, uh, asset classes where your cost of capital has fallen to almost zero and uh, built a cyclically adjusted price earnings uh, tool to you know if I said to trade equities that would probably being a little bit too adventurous that wasn 't where he, you know he set out but out of this uh, we find that a naive, cyclically adjusted price earnings uh, um, tool works as well, even better, than a cyclically adjusted PE tool with uh, cost of capital built into it, and it gives you a good, uh, good forecasting or good prediction capability. That's information advantage.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's it. I, I think that's key, getting your information advantage. But then, in my experience as a trader, the number one thing is when you're wrong, just cut the losses. <laughs> Keep your losses yeah, small. Yeah. That's, it's simple. But that that in itself is an edge. Yeah, Keeping your losses and, small and, and being disciplined you, enough. Yeah.
1: When you say small, is that, in your experience, is that based on the conviction of your position? Is it the same rule across all portfolios should it be different sizes for different mandates
0: so it varies but in my own trading the rule is i don't ever want to lose more than one percent of my capital that i'm managing on an individual trade and that's hard and 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 sometimes less, right? So it'll generally be, yeah. a I'm willing to accept a loss of between 0.5% and 1% of the capital that I'm trading on an individual trade um, and and no more. So what that means is that if you can get your risk to reward ratio right on your winning trades, then it does move the needle. When you, when you get a winner that's making four or five times more than what you're risking, that moves the needle. But when you're wrong... You you losing between zero point five percent and one percent of your capital that you're trading, it doesn't really hurt that much. Um, and but the the real key is to make sure that you actually cut the loss. And I think that's where so many people go wrong, is they they start to bend the rules around loss taking, and say yeah nobody really wants to lose money, so therefore that one percent loss suddenly. You know, people move stop losses or ignore stop losses, and then your one percent loss becomes two percent, becomes three percent, etc. And suddenly, you're in the hole for quite a lot of money. If you can keep the losses small, that is the secret. I mean, statistically, I was doing a, a look at my own trading records the other day. I, in the last six months, I got forty four percent of my trades right, which means mm-hmm. that I got more more trades wrong than what I got mm-hmm. right, and yet I've made reasonably good money over that time. And the only reason why is because the losses were small and the, and the profits were proportionately bigger and net-net yeah. net you come up yeah. with a positive result and quite a comfortable positive result at the end of that. But, the, the, you know, that's my thing is part of your edge in trading is not only the informational edge, uh, etc., but it's also your ability to keep the losses small and to cut losses when you should cut losses.
1: Yeah, and what you remind me of there is—it's actually a book that I'm reading at the moment, uh, written by uh, Ed uh, uh, Ed Thorpe uh, yeah. of uh, of Newport Capital. And uh, believe it or not, you know where he finds his information advantage. I might be overusing that term, but it's in card counting. Um, you know, and card counting lays out the odds, the probability. So if we can. Uh, pick up those principles um, from a casino and drop them into an investment process. What are the odds, how they stacked up? um, How do you uh, limit your downside? And I I love the fact that you, you know, you you talk to the, the win ratio in your, uh, in your process, because if you, even with a 44, did you say 44 or 41? 44. 44. With a 44 win ratio, if you let the winners run, but you, you cut the losers without uh, you know, uh, uh, without batting an eye, that's the discipline yeah um, and there's the process exactly. so um, uh, you know maybe you know the, the other element that you've raised in this is the discipline of I'm going to cut it minus one, no questions asked, if you have sixteen minus ones in a row you know, we then move into the realm of, uh, you know, out of discipline and into depression, you know, and how yeah. do you manage that sure. psychology?
0: Yes. Yeah. And, and, and absolutely. That is part of it because statistically, you know that you're going to hit a string of losers at some point in time where you're going to have a number of those mm-hmm. minus ones all on top of each other. In, but In then- my
1: investment finance class, we, I play a game, uh, a live exercise where, I ask people to flip heads and tails and this is a trading strategy flip yeah. heads and tails and I ask them if we flip the coin 100 times what are you going to get of course 50-50 is a reasonable guess and indeed you know many of them or some of them get 50-50 but even with 100 flips uh, most coins don't land up 50-50 most coins land up you know doing 49 51 48 uh, 52 etc so that's the one thing that it shows that even with a hundred flips, uh, you have a biased coin. Uh, the second is, and that's a trading approach. The second is, uh, and maybe I can ask you this, mm. what do you think the record is of uninterrupted heads or tails in a row?
0: So it's, I'm smiling while you ask me this because on the yeah, trading, the, 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 the well, yeah, the high probability trading course that I run, I do the same exercise with delegates on the <laughs> course. And, and I always get a, a, someone to come up to the front of the class and I do this exercise and i say, I'll give yeah. you, you know, with the five Rand coin, every time the coin lands on heads, I'll give you five Rand. But every time the head, the coin lands on tails, you must give me 10 Rand and we flip yeah. the coin and flip it. And. And, you know, the idea behind the exercise is to try and prove to the class that even with a string of of losses uh, against me, I can still come out making money on that strategy. But one time I I did this exercise and I swear the coin was biased against me. It went 11 times in a row Ah, against me. And, uh, and I, I kind of thought, this exercise. I'm really not disappointing the class here. I'm not, trying, I'm not proving the point that I'm trying to make. Eventually, mm-hmm. with enough flips of the coin, I've managed to prove the point. But yes, 11 times in a row, I got the coin the wrong way. So what, what okay. is your experience with that <laughs> exercise?
1: So that's, I mean, that's, well, I'm fortunate. So you're running the the exercise slightly different than mine. I've got a class of 40 or 50 people. Right. And so I get all 40 or 50 of them to flip the coin at the same time. So I've got a lovely sample. And by habit, it tends to be 12, 13, 14 uh, heads or tails in a row. Right.
0: um,
1: Is uh, the record uh, over. 12 years of running this exercise, the record is 16. Mm. No, but if I said to you, I'm going to flip 16 heads or tails in a row, you would say the chances of that is zero, but it's yeah. not. Yeah. You know, we get this, we certainly get 12, 13, 14 with year-in-year-out regularity.
0: Yeah. And those are what I refer to that as clusters. So you get clusters when you're flipping the coin, you get clusters when you're trading. Um, And these clusters can work in your favor or they can work against you. So the key is to manage the psychology around those clusters Mm -hmm. as well. So when you get a, a cluster of bad trades, you know, don't get too depressed. Uh, but at the same time, when you get a cluster of good trades all on top of each other, don't think that you're a hero and, and extrapolate this in a straight line into the future because that's also not going to happen either. And that comes back to that whole point about managing the emotions of trading and getting the psychology right.
1: Yeah, and that's where I would go to, uh, I think, the uh, the giants uh, in thinking about investment psychology, the likes of John Nofsinger. Um, uh, James Montier, um, Daniel Kahneman, yeah. Richard Thaler, Justin Fox, Dan Ariely. Mm,
0: mm, mm. Fantastic. Adrian, I know that you've got to go at the top of the hour and we've only got a couple of minutes left until the top of the hour. Um, so I'm going to wrap it up very quickly. Um, what, what is in your future? I know that you're, you and your wife are currently... Um, on opposite ends commuting. of the of the planet <laughs> not only are committing but not like a joburg to cape town commit you guys are on opposite ends of the planet right now um, so that's interesting what yeah. <laughs> what's uh, what's what's your near term future looking like In, and i
1: i guess that that's one of the gifts you know that covid has given has given us uh, as much as the the last two years have brought unbelievable challenges you know, economically socially in our personal and private circumstances. um, uh, It's uh, it's afforded uh, remote working. So uh, Tash um, was offered an incredible opportunity in in Toronto. Uh, She's been there for uh, seven months. Uh, I I hop over every couple of months and spend uh, a few weeks with her. It's never enough time. It's uh, it's difficult doing this by geographic distance, time zone difference, seven hours different at the moment. So, you know, we're speaking. I'm looking. I've got my my watches on permanent Canada time, so I can tell you. Although I'm at two o'clock Johannesburg time, it's seven o'clock Toronto time. And um, you know, thank goodness we've got uh, data uh, and we've got video and. uh, the uh, the strength of a relationship plus some data uh, and the ability to commute. And she's got this incredible opportunity working in, uh, in an, uh, as the Vice President of Innovation for an enterprise called Mars Discovery District. Um, and uh, in January, I got over there for, uh, for a week uh, and helped shovel the driveway, uh, 18 inches of snow in five hours minus 30 and uh, 24 hours later I was back in johannesburg plus 30 so, <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow maybe
1: maybe that's psychology eh
0: hey? yeah there we go absolutely absolutely <laughs> <laughs> All right, Adrian. Well, it is the top of the hour. I know you've got another appointment to get onto after this. So I'm going to wrap it up there. Thank you so much once again for joining great me. It's been It's always great chatting to you. Uh, superb insights as always. And um, all the best. And I look forward to catching up with you again, probably in another year or so from now.
1: Thanks, Garth. Take
0: great care. And you too. Cheers. Ciao. Sure. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking with Traders brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to this series by clicking on the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd also appreciate if you'd leave a review on the app too. Till next time.